The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Market moving insight and analysis. Join Jim Cramer, David Faber, and me, Carl Quintanilla, on the opening bell hour of CNBC Squawk on the Street. Good Friday morning. Welcome to Squawk on the Street. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Jim Cramer at Post 9 of the New York Stock Exchange. David Faber has the morning off. Futures are holding their gains despite the worrisome headlines out of Israel and Gaza. You can thank a steady series of beats today. J.P. Morgan, City, Wells, UNH. Speaking of earnings, BlackRock's Larry Finkel join us here after the opening bell. Our roadmap begins with the banks topping estimates pretty much across the board. We'll dig into that. The Microsoft Activision deal officially done as Britain's watchdog gives the green light. And Boeing is the biggest drag on the Dow, expanding their probe of this production defect on the max. Let's begin, though, with the banks, Jim. Uh, overall, not just the beats, some of the commentary about investment banking, efficiency ratios look good. Yeah, it's funny because obviously this group came in uh, as cold as I've ever seen it. Uh, what a change from uh, even earlier this week when Pepsi came in hot uh, and then rolls over. I, I mentioned that because that was the first big quarter. Uh, these quarters, when you when you listen to them, you, you forget how much money they can make in this environment. Uh, and then you start thinking, you know what? These things are seven, eight, nine, ten times earnings. And they're trading like steel mills, and they're really filled with a lot of smart people who are doing a lot of good things who show you they can make a lot of money without underwriting, without M and A. So you know, there's kind of going to be a, a a bit of a revaluation here recognizing that this group had become, uh, when, really went to the bottom of the list of what people wanted to own. And now you're starting to think, wow, you know what, they have good efficiency ratios. They're making a lot of money in a very difficult environment. What happens if the environment gets better? Uh, and I think the stock, the JP Morgan when I came in was down 70 cents. So I'm like reading it all in a vacuum. And I'm saying, well, maybe I don't see anything wrong. And then in the comp school, they come on. And they come on like gangbusters uh, with you know, caveating things that we all, you know, the caveat international problems. They're making a lot of money. Now, let's see if it lasts. I mean, I happen to like Charlie Sharp. My Chapel Trust owns Wells Fargo. And I saw the stock was up. And I said, well, I mean, that's got to be an error. I mean, up. I mean, are you kidding me? Yeah. But then Charlie bought back a couple, a couple of million, I mean, like five, five, a couple million shares. But what he did was have his expenses down, his revenues up. I mean, it's kind of a classic form of what you're supposed to do. And I think that Charlie, I know Charlie doesn't come on. I wish he would. I think people need to know who Charlie Sharp is. Because Charlie Sharp, while he can be very dogmatic about, like, say, um, your manners. <laughs> yes. He's not. He's yeah. delightful yeah, about know, banking. You know. You know them well. That is sort of the running theme. City's another good example where revenue growth outpaced expense growth. Uh, even the guidance, Jim, on net interest margin for the coming quarter or net interest income, better at PNC, supposed, above yeah. consensus at uh, Wells. They're supposed to be terrible. Now, the estimates came down, 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 down. Right. And these uh, companies are supposed to do very poorly at this point, the yield curve, at this point where the Fed is. And I think that what people have to start recognizing is these companies are very lucrative. Uh, They've not been viewed as that. And they usually are one-day wonders. You'll have a quarter where wells will go up, 
and then maybe on, on Monday somebody will raise numbers. And by the time we get to Friday, just move on. Maybe this is a new benchmark of recognizing that in a really horrible environment, they made, they made pretty good money. What, how do you square all of that with, as you mentioned, uh, Diamond's comments specifically about the world and this comment that the world may be more dangerous today than it has been in decades, and then ongoing no. complaints about Basel regulation and geopolitics, Ukraine, now well, Israel. I think that we're going to have Larry Fink on, and he's talking about it being as hard as 2016, 2018, and I think that's more level-headed. I think that uh, that's, he's not the first person who's come on and say this is the most perilous time. And I keep coming back to moments when it was existential and, and you were preparing to die from a, and I not, don't use this lightly, from, a, from an H-bomb attack uh, from Russia. Uh, I think that 1941, uh, there was very little chance that it looked like we could win. Uh, there have been moments where we've had presidents under siege, and people don't understand 73, 74, and what it was like to have a, a president who was crook. And, and I just think that people need a little more historical backdrop. Uh, I was going to be a history professor. And I turned it down because my dad said, I'm a salesman, and you want to be a history professor? Why don't we just keep the tradition of making no money? <laughs> and, and I said, okay, Dad, I get that. Uh, but I, I think that the sense of history is missing from these people who are, are not historians. And they say things like, I'm, look, I'm not saying when the Germans bombed bomb Pearl Harbor. I'm not going that. Uh, that's a reference to a movie. But I do think that this desire to make it so that we uh, analogize to other times is very, it's, it, it is very suboptimal his, history and is not rigorous enough. We just don't understand the, the, the republic's challenges. Um, I mean, this is like when, when President Lincoln sat around with Grant after they won. And Lincoln's making a judgment that we're not a great country, and they're all saying we're a great country, because we just finished a war that we won. I mean, there have been perilous times in the republic. Right. This is not one of them. This is not a great time. But it's not perilous. And we have to stop saying, especially the rich people, it's always perilous for the rich people. Most people are trying to keep their job. Trying to go, whether they should go to Dollar General Dodge. This is uh, the conversation you and I had earlier in the week after Paul Tudor Jones was on Squawk. It's ill-advised. Your, your, your notion is that opportunity will always exist. Yes. Despite whatever backdrop you're given in your yes. lifetime. Yes. I mean, was there opportunity December 8th, uh, 1941? Problemat was problematic. Uh, was there opportunity when Jimmy Carter was president and he basically told you, listen, there's really no reason for, for hope? And I know he's a, a sainted figure, but I was alive during the Melez period, and I said, geez, you know, maybe we're not in a great time. Or, or, or with the hostages, when Reagan came in, and he was basically saying, listen, we're going to bomb, and we're, we're going to bomb Iran, and you know, that's a frightening concept. Does it strike you as odd, though, that given the news this week, the Dow is on pace to break a okay. four-week loss? And that's what I want to ask Larry Fink about, because that is the conundrum that tells me that I'm right that you can have all these things that the rich people, and I really want to make this rich. I do want to make it a little class warfare, and I don't like class warfare, but there are a lot of people who come on our network who have made a lot of money, and they don't, they're not sensitive to the idea that there should be others that make money. They're just sensitive to keeping their money. Now, you could say, well, Jim, no, they're actually being great historians coming on here, and I'm saying they're hack historians. They're hack. And, just, you know, by the way, just because you're rich don't make you that smart. Um, uh, there it is. I'm putting it out there. Your point about um, 
uh, the consumer, uh, this line out of J.P. Morgan, the CFO this morning, saying that the consumer is not feeling acute pain yet. That's, that's, that's feeding this conversation about uh, excess they savings. They still have some. They still have some savings left. Uh, small business, which my uh, former colleague uh, here, Larry Kudlow, would say, look, you, we spend way too much time talking about big business. Small business is doing incredibly well. That's J.P. Morgan. J.P. Morgan's numbers were exceptional. But coming in, what the heck was J.P. Morgan doing at 145? But what were these banks? I mean, this is, remember, I think we have to default to what they talk to when they're, when they're off the desk. Uh, I mean, literally, they say, okay, why is my stock at nine times earnings? We're the premier bank in the world. And the answer is because you're hated and unpredictable, and people don't know what you're going to do. And people buy into the, that it's the coming apocalypse. I mean, these, are, these, these stocks were, were valued at apocalyptic levels. I mean, Wells Fargo, Charlie Sharp has turned that place around. And yet that stock was at 62 on February 8th of 2018. So it was at 62. I mean, what a terrible, terrible situation. Right. You know, it's like, it, it, you know, there's a piece today was saying it's not the end of the world that um, the, G, the GLP was. Yes. Not the end of the world. And that's very typical. Like people, like I was on, I was listening to a call that was saying, listen, once everyone's on GLP-1, Delta's going to make a lot more money because the planes are lighter. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, okay. Okay. We, we, it's because people won't order the tomahawk. They'll, they'll order the tofu. No. We're going to get to Novo, by the way, raising Ooh, guidance today. How about but, that? But really quick, Harker, and Eli Lilly's better there. Harker's on the tape uh, this morning. Uh, Fed official, of course. Uh, we are at the point where we can hold rates where they are. Uh, rates are restrictive. Uh, uh, restrictive disinflation's underway. We're going to hear from Powell next week, Jim. Well, that's good. I wish these guys would all shut up. I, I mean it seriously. They're confusing the markets. They're not doing anything that I find is valuable. I mean, you know, look, I've spoken at the Rotary. Okay. Just keep it high level about the neighborhood. There is absolutely no reason that Patrick Harker had to do one thing to deviate from the narrative that Bryce Harper is the single best acquisition we've ever had. That's it. I mean, just stop it and talk about the Eagles and then say, listen, things are fine. I don't like these people who every day come up with a different view. Who are they? They're just, did he, was he elected? I like him. But we have a Fed chair. He's very smart. And it would really help him if they just said, you know what, I defer to the Fed. And just say that over and over again. No one's going to dislike you. No one. But no, they feel like they all have to say something. We have an amazing Fed chair. And can't he just be the spokesperson for the Fed, please? Yeah, yeah. Overcommunication uh, has been a common, Overcommunication. Com- common complaint. Of course, uh, Powell will have to reference, at least in some way, uh, how the world has changed in the last uh, five I or agree. six days. That I agree. Uh, let's get to the latest around the Israel-Hamas war. Israel's military, as you may know by now, calling for all civilians of Gaza City to relocate within 24 hours, a move that may signal an upcoming ground assault. Let's turn to NBC's Kelly Kobiea, live from Jerusalem. Good morning, Kelly. Carl, good morning to you. Yeah, 1.1 million people, that's half the population of Gaza, told to evacuate to move south uh, by midnight tonight. The United Nations said that they received warning at midnight last night uh, that they needed to evacuate. They say this is simply impossible. Uh, We have been talking to our staff on the ground. They say that people are packing up their cars. They're taking uh, their absolute necessities and trying to move south. But the problem is not everybody can get 
uh, to the south. Uh, our, our folks say that there's a shortage of taxis. There simply aren't enough cars to take 1.1 million people uh, out of uh, harm's way in this short amount of time. There's a shortage of fuel because of the blockade that's been in place for the past six days now. And on top of that, the United Nations says, look, we have uh, people in hospital on life support, babies in incubators, uh, patients who are very ill, who need power in order to survive. And it's simply not feasible to get all of those people out of harm's way, keeping in mind that the largest hospital in the Gaza Strip is in Gaza City in the north. So a very difficult situation playing out for civilians in the north. The IDF says uh, people have to move. It's for their own safety. Uh, meantime, here in Israel, uh, the defense secretary, Lloyd Austin, was in town today meeting with his Israeli counterpart. Uh, and he said afterward about those attacks on Saturday, uh, I have a lot of, I'm paraphrasing here, I have experience with ISIS. This is worse than anything I've seen with ISIS, uh, showing uh, support for Israel with his visit here and Secretary of State Antony Blinken still on his uh, diplomatic trip through the Middle East, meeting with King Abdullah and Jordan, as well as the Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas. Uh, and, uh, you know, on top of all of this, we have those airstrikes overnight. Uh, the IDF pounding Gaza once again, hitting some 750 targets overnight. Uh, the country now sort of on standby, essentially, for what may be a ground offensive uh, coming quite soon. Carl? Kelly, thank you for that. We'll talk again hopefully this morning about some of the headlines regarding uh, comments out of Hezbollah as well. That's NBC's Kelly Kobiea. Take a look at the pre-market here, holding on to gains. Yields pretty steady. We'll get to Dollar General, Novo, UNH, Boeing, Ford, a call on Netflix, and of course, Larry Fink, a BlackRock when we return. Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to fight rising costs of inflation or pay off your debt or anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, can help. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been helping great investors like you. Whether you're a seasoned investor or just looking for tips, Yahoo Finance makes it super easy by putting all the tools and data you need in one spot. Yahoo Finance takes a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and more. You can securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. That's how Yahoo Finance gives you insights and helps you take a look at your wealth in its entirety. That big picture perspective is what great investors need. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor. YahooFinance.com, the number one financial destination. YahooFinance.com. That's YahooFinance.com. The Microsoft Activision deal officially done as the UK's Competition and Markets Authority gives the green light. Last major hurdle holding up the deal. Activision's Bobby Kotick was on Squawk earlier today to talk about the transaction. We were concerned about what the regulatory climate would be, but we never thought that there was any you know, real reason that was legitimate why these two companies couldn't combine. There's so many competitors that are bigger, more successful, with more advantages. And so I think we ultimately always believed that just on the merits of the transaction that it would get through. Jim, is it all clear? Yeah. Boy, I'll tell you, if you go back to the FTC's case against, against the deal uh, and you go back to the injunction that they failed to get, 
and you have the, uh, a judge, a federal judge, just saying, look, there's absolutely no rigor whatsoever to the FTC. They produced one, uh, one expert witness who was not qualified, and there's no reason, and there's no, no um, diminution of gamers uh, and people who write, write games. And I read it, and I said, and I talked to some of my friends who were, who were in my law school class, and they all said, rebuke, just a, just a total rebuke. So I, I figured this would happen. There was, you know, it was a pretty fatuous reasoning uh, that there would be less money for, for people to write uh, programs. Now, I will say, just want to distinguish that between the more rigorous Jonathan Canner at the Justice Department, who brought the suit where Stephen King was a key uh, witness about how if he continued to, to limit the number of publishers, then it will be impossible for authors to get a good bid. And that's very true. Um, meanwhile, there is a comment from an FTC spokesperson. Uh, we remain focused, Jim, on the federal appeal process. Uh, despite Microsoft and Activision closing their deal in advance of a scheduled appeals court hearing in December, what's the chance they, they do pedal to the metal on that? Well, they have to make a decision uh, whether they want to be viewed as a laughing stock or as a, uh, a rigorous organization. And this is their moment the line in the sand where they could just say, okay, look, uh, we've lost this. We put up the best case we could. Uh, they were slapped down in that ruling. Um, the only person I've ever searched judge is Judge Kaplan, by the way, who's the judge for uh, SPF, who's very tough. But this was a ruling which just basically said, guys, please, uh, be, get some lawyers, find out what you're doing. You, you really don't know what you're doing. And so if they go up against that, they will lose so quickly their heads are going to spin. Faster than Reagan. And I don't mean president. Do you think any of this uh, is a comment on the benefits of sticking to your guns if you are a corporate involved in a deal and, and facing look, look, obstacles to begin- close? This is the beginning. I've been with some M&A lawyers and bankers. You know, M&A bankers think every deal is going to get passed because they get paid that way. But M&A lawyers are starting to say, you know what? I thought that I've been advising every single client don't make that deal. And now they're advising, listen, I think that that has, uh, there's precedent and you'll win in court, but you'll be opposed, uh, but you'll win in court. So do you have nine months? Do you have a year? Uh, and that's a big change of, of, of dialogue and dynamic. Yeah, and that explains some of the M&A commentary from Larry, who we'll talk to in a moment. Yes. At BlackRock and, and JPM and others in the banks today. Well, look, I, I think that you know, obviously, President Biden wouldn't have picked Lena Khan if he didn't think that that's the right way to go. And it is, by the way, it is absolutely true that shareholders benefit from from takeovers. But when did it ever happen and said that shareholders aren't supposed to benefit? And by the way, can I just tell them that the combination between Exxon and Pioneer gives them 15 uh, percent, the but Permian? that Rockefeller had 100 percent. And that is heavily concentrated. <laughs> We'll get Kramer's Mad Dash countdown to the opening bell on an eventful Friday morning as we kick off our Q3 earnings season uh, in force. Uh, futures are positive here. We'll get the opening bell in 10 minutes with the BlackRock's Larry Fink still on deck. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.
Time for Kramer's Mad Dash as we count down to the opening bell. We always get caught up in the banks, and that's right, the big ones, but we used to auto focus for time on United Health. Now, United Health is the biggest, uh, this is an amazing health insurer that has a terrific technology department, too. Now, the last time they spoke, this was the famous pickleball incident where you suddenly said, wait a second, the medical loss is bad, and it's the jaws drop from everybody because UNH never misses. Well, UNH is back, and they've got the medical loss ratio perfect. They, they gain um, every line item I like. Some people say that their optimum business wasn't that good. I say, give me a break. But this is a key component in the healthcare universe, and I just want to point people out that there will be a plethora of stocks that will trade well off this. Have you heard anything on GLP-1s from them yet? Well, I'm waiting. I'm waiting. Uh, I think that you have to... Look, if I were on the call, the first thing I would say is, are you going to encourage people at major corporations that they say, listen, you should take GLP-1 because we find that the uh, heart attack ratio is is very good. But I think that everyone is still circumspect because Eli Lilly is only for uh, diabetes, not for weight loss. But I have to tell you that if this holds up, you're going to see tons of stocks uh, in this healthcare, of which there are many, say, but maybe the scare of too many operations post, uh, post the pandemic is now over. Good, good quarter. Yeah. Uh, and uh, of all the down names, nothing moves the index more than UNA. I'm so glad you said that because that's why people might see that the market goes up. It's not going to be JP Morgan. It's going to be these guys. Yeah. That explains what futures are doing. Uh, watch that. After the break, our exclusive with BlackRock's Larry Fink with the opening bell in just over five minutes. My least favorite would be long-term bonds. I don't think bonds with a long duration make any sense given what's going on in the world. You know, and uh, I think interest rates will likely go higher. And when interest rates go higher, bond prices drop. And I would not be a buyer of bonds until we got to over 5%. That's Lee Cooperman yesterday, uh, CNBC's uh, FA summit, sort of echoing others on the street like Bill Ackman. Yeah, and I, I, we get to hear from Larry Fink, obviously, who's got a lot more to say on this issue and knows much more than I do. I will say that uh, I'm with... I, I am very much with Lee. Uh, I've not made a move. I've got, we've obviously, we can't own stocks. I have cash. Uh, I'm not attracted at this level. I just think that there's uh, the 20 year at five, even that doesn't intrigue me. I, I got to get a better return because I'd rather be in the SP 500. Were you freaked out by the auction yesterday? And That's that very Midday sell Because those idiots in Treasury did it. You're not allowed to say that. Why did they finally do 30 year? I begged them to do 30 year paper. Every Treasury Secretary, not this one, we shouldn't take my call. It doesn't matter. She's not someone I deal with. But um, probably would take my call after I sit down. And Treasury, it's just I don't have a relationship with this Treasury. I shouldn't say she would take my call. Sure. But, but I, the previous uh, three Treasury Secretaries, I begged them to do 30 years because it seemed just such an obvious uh, give giveaway, a do, you know, just an obvious do. And now they do 30 year. I mean, someone there has to really get in touch with their, with their cranium which is clear. I think they're on a permanent intellectual uh, vacation there. Um, meantime, B of A today, uh, Hartnett argues that the 10-year, if it can stay below five, maybe the S&P holds 4,200. Does that make sense? Well, I mean, if we're just going to totally link it to the bonds, then let's just, let's just uh, go on autopilot. That's really, I mean, there's, United Health is not going to trade with the bonds, okay? There are individual stocks. We are in earnings season. And now there are individual stocks that trade, and I don't want to play the hedge fund game of just looking at the S&P. 
because we're not trading futures here. We're, we're investing in stocks. It's a very big difference. With that in mind, let's get this final trading session of the week up and running. Opening bell today, CNBC Real-Time Exchange and the big board, it's Wells, celebrating diversity and equity and inclusion month. We'll talk to the CFO in a couple of hours later on this morning. At the NASDAQ, it's Money Hero, a personal finance platform celebrating its listing via SPAC. Well, I hope it goes well because I don't like SPACs. They've really hurt the people who watch us. And someone better watch out, so I'll just do it because I do not play for dinner and I don't care. Um, are you impressed that people appear to be at the moment willing to go long into a weekend where we know what the headlines are out of Gaza? Well, I think that, uh, look, that's a complicated issue there, but there's a, uh, obviously a, a strategic move that Israel's made that says, listen, uh, you want the, until you, you don't get the lights turned on until you give the hostages back. And I think that, that, um, that they have always felt that Egypt was a free rider and that, that they're trying to push people down that way. Uh, but I, you know, look, I, I think that there's, there are a lot of people, I think, who feel that the situation is not out of control, that, that what Israel's doing is trying to uh, figure out a way to make it so there's the least bloodshed, but there will be a lot of bloodshed. And I just don't know. I think there's a lot of people, when you hear people talk about how they're worse than ISIS, what that does is take off the table uh, where one country is, the United States, which has been a huge backer, and saved Israel in, 70, in uh, the Yom Kippur War. And people don't realize that, that Israel would have lost the Yom Kippur War because they haven't done the work. And Nixon saved them with Kissinger. So, I mean, I think that it steamed off the table when you heard what both the, the defense secretary and Blinken said, sure. which was, look, if it's ISIS, well, then do what you have to. Sure. Uh, Defense Secretary's there now, uh, of course, and Blinken's going to be making his way around the region. I think Amman right. is on the list of cities. All sectors for the time being, though, are green, and we, we should probably mention oil up high, Jim. 4%, this would be uh, the best day in a couple of months. Yeah, I think it's manipulated now. I, I just find that oil goes up on a statement, goes down on a statement, but there's plenty of supply. Uh, there is just, I think, an attempt to try to keep the price higher. Uh, Russian sanctions have not worked whatsoever because the Chinese won't play ball. I want to go back to Israel for a second. Israel, we have personal views and we have uh, views that we can talk about where our personal views can suffuse it, but I don't think that's right. I have a view, but what I'm trying to do is just see, say what I say. Uh, I, I'm an American who says what I say. And I just want to make that point because I think that I'm trying to distance myself from somebody who might come on and say, listen, I'm pulling every dollar. Sure. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm just saying that that's what it seems like what they're doing. And that's a strategy. And it's a strategy that's different from what people thought they were going to do. That's all I've said. Very good. Uh, by the way, J.P. Morgan yesterday uh, did get bullish. They said once again on global energy, reiterates an $80 target. They're talking about um, a supply de deficit next year with upside risk to the, one again, 150 range. Well, we're going to speak to someone who has more international background than I am in a moment. But, I mean, to me, uh, we have an axis of evil, not unlike what President Reagan talked about. And the Russians do what they want and the Chinese do what they want. And it, it doesn't have to be that way. Particularly, I don't think the Chinese have to be part of an axis of evil. I think that they're, on, I think that they're going to have to rethink their position because I don't think they are who they say they and I, I'm not making an NFL analogy, but I do think that there's more hope with China than there is with Russia. And I don't want to say that they're the same kind of countries. Right. And meanwhile, we're back to looking at signals of deflation in China once again, which is causing some to revisit their growth models. I wish that they realized how much they need us, because if they did, then I think that the world would be a safer place. 
Uh, so banks are, will help lead us here, Jim. I guess sort of segues into our coming guest in a couple of seconds. Yeah, I mean, look, I, you know, Charlie Sharp, because Wells Fargo, the diversity and inclusion people, a terrific group, uh, that stock was up a dollar, and now it's only up a dollar versus J.P. Morgan, which has done incredibly well. And I just think that, I think the one thing about J.P. Morgan is, is that they have had one-day moves that surprise people. And a lot of that, I think, is because they're very close-lipped about what's happening on. So you, going on, so you tend to be surprised. It's a good quarter. And, and, you know, when you get J.P. Morgan at, at nine times earnings, I mean, I don't know, if you read, if you read The House of Morgan by Chernow, you will know that they should never trade at nine times earnings. They're better than that. <laughs> Much better than that. Well, I am so excited because we have someone who's going to make it so, someone who does a lot more history than I do and a lot more uh, outlook of what's going on in the world. And BlackRock reported uh, terrific quarter this morning. And I think that given the fact that there's uh, outflows, it just shows you that technologically they're doing a lot to make it so that that's no longer the fulcrum of why we look at it. Uh, they reached out over $9 trillion. When you look at it, when you see that number, if that's like governments. You just say, oh, $9 trillion, that must be the U.S. government. Anyway, BlackRock's chairman and CEO, Larry Fink joins us now to discuss the quarter. Larry, congratulations. You guys can make money no matter what. It's my day. Thank you, Jim. Carl, good to see you. And I wanted to ask you, are you in, in, on your conference call, say you're disappointed because you're, you're a competitive person. Yep. Sorry about the Dodgers. And what I look <laughs> at and I say to myself, if you're disappointed with these numbers, you're doing everything you can to bring in money. There's really not more than you can do. And it just happens to be the world and where the bonds are that I think are making yeah. it so your competition is tough. Look, at as you said, I mean, uh, revenues were up 5%. Operating income was up 7%. Net income was up 14%. We did have s- uh, some outflows in, in our precision ETFs, which is a great example of uh, more people choosing iShares uh, to trade right. around, actively trading it. And when market sentiment turns, like it did in August and September, and you people can see that daily. People should pay attention to the precision. You know sentiment, and you see outflows. However, I mean, it's, it's up hundreds of billions of dollars in the last few years. So it's, every time we've seen this period of time when it, we see outflows, we see real inflows when sentiment turns. Uh, we had one big client uh, in, in uh, EMEA who took, pulled out money. It had nothing to do with it. Our normal flows were 95% of the average flows of the last bunch of quarters. And then systematically over the last 12 months, we're up $300 billion in net inflows. You know, and so, and we see a huge opportunities and flows over the next year or so because all the things we're working on. And, uh, but there is no question, we have a better understanding of the texture of what's going on in the market through our ETF platform and our global network. And, and the, unquestionably, we're seeing, you know, the, my barometer of hope and fear with all the geopolitical issues, we're seeing more fear, more people pulling back. And you're actually seeing that in the yield curve. You're seeing the yield curve flatten. Right. And the yield curve is flattening uh, because, uh, A, people think we're closer to the end of rate hikes. I'm still calling for rates, long rates to be above over 5%. I think the numbers of inflation this week really shows the stickiness of it. We're going to do a lot more military spending as a result of geopolitical right. issues. We are... We are, uh, we are going to see an acceleration of fragmentation of supply chains because of geopolitical issues, but also as we advance AI and robotics, there is such an enormous opportunity to nearshore 
and, uh, and, um, and I think this is all the dynamic. That's part of the dynamics of what's going on in China when you were talking about China and China's growth issues. We are seeing a recalibration. As I think I said a couple of quarters ago, people are reassessing all their dependencies, and one of the great dependencies that the world still has is the amount of manufacturing assembly in China. Technology is allowing us to recalibrate that. And then we're also recalibrating. You look at the growth rates of India. You look at the growth rates of Mexico. Great opportunities. Yes, for both. I know you know Mexico very well. Yeah. India was quite impressive this and quarter. And that's where money's going to. Right. I was in Japan last week. And the amount of investor interest to invest in Japan is extraordinary. We have a, prime minister, a new prime minister in Kishida who has really reoriented the entire economy to be more business-friendly, business-open. They're trying to track more and more external capital. So we're seeing actually money moving from different locations back into Ch uh, in, uh, Japan. And Japan has been an area where, where investors have been systematically underinvesting. Right. And so they're now getting back in. But you make the point of the generational opportunity in bonds, but you just said about yeah. the 30-year. Now, I found myself looking at portfolios because I have to invest in, I can invest in bonds. And I was very attracted to, candidly, to the high yield. Right. It just seemed like a great opportunity. Um, but I don't know where that's where you would prefer someone my age. What, who's interested in that and who should be? As rates go higher, you're going to see more immunization of, of, of the old defined benefit plans to lock in. As liability rates went up, we are seeing more and more pension funds, more corporate funds that are actually matched assets and liabilities. And so they're going to be able to immunize the volatility. And that means they're going to be selling out of equities, buying more long bonds. And that will happen. It's not happening yet. Um, but let's be clear, if you could start earning 7% on credit, right. if you could start earning 10 to 12% on infrastructure investing as our infrastructure act going in, as our IRA starting to be implemented, these are going to be good, healthy, long-term investments that are going to be you know, anywhere from 8 to 15% returns with high probability of success. And right. So, and so that's where a lot of money is moving. Okay, it's like, Carl, when I was talking about how the rich people come on, and they're like, basically, it's perilous, forget it. This is what I'm talking about. That's <laughs> yes. the opportunity. Correct. And people who are listening should say, you know what? In this time of peril, did he just say I might be able to get those rates? That's pretty darn good. And, you know, right now we're, we're facing a lot of headwinds on geopolitical issues. Uh, Hamas invasion of Israel, the horrific acts. That creates a lot of fear, and people are actually pulling back, watching right. this. At the same time, you know, the, and the headlines of every newspaper, every website is about the fear issues about yes. the world. But if you overlay the opportunities in investing in AI and robotics, the opportunities in nearshoring and recalibrating supply chain. Now, if you overlay, because you were talking about the healthcare companies, now if you overlay the incredible transformation in, in, in with a Zempec and other items, what it's going to do for longevity of life. Yes. Okay, this week we discovered that these drugs can help in renal failure. They can help in other things. Now if you overlay that and like Eli Lilly's drug for Alzheimer's, that extends uh, the pathway by at least 40%. This is creating hope. And so a lot of people ask me, why isn't the market collapsing? <laughs> okay, because of all of this. We're not spending time talking about these opportunities of, 
There is incredible medical discovery that is elongating life. We have great recalibration of supply chains that's going to bring jobs here, right. opportunities here in the United States, in Mexico, in India, and other places. So, you know, we're spending so much time on the negatives, but right. all of this just tells me why you need to be continue investing. Yeah. Well, Carl, I mean, These are the opportunities. Are the, we spend so much time talking about the fact that we're not going to eat sugar cereal. <laughs> maybe we should talk about the idea that maybe our average lifespan is going to be 75. <laughs> But, you know, think about what that means, though, getting back to long-duration bonds. So if we're going to be living longer, are we being prepared properly? And if you could start locking in, you know, 7, 8, 9% for 10, 20 years, that's going to give you a lot more confidence and dignity in retirement. People are betting against themselves. They think they're going to make it to 72. They shouldn't be thinking that they can make it to 85. They better have enough money when they get there. I think that is going to be the biggest societal risk. Yes. Um, and, And I think, you know, look, we're seeing more death because of drugs drug abuse, but, and so that's bringing down our longevity rates, all those type of issues. And so if you make it to 60, you have a higher probability of making it to 80 and 90 and 100. And so the statistics of the declining mortality rates are hiding some of the real upsides. And I'm not trying to dismiss some of these tragic medical problems like you know, drug abuse and the and but we may be solving obesity, which is the major problem of so many of the problems. And and so I, I'm I'm more optimistic than ever with the overlay that in the short run, we're going to have to face some near term issues. Right. Do you think that that means the median age of the marginal equity buyer rises? Yes. Where you will you'll tolerate risk later in life? I am and I'm older. <laughs> No, I, there's no question. I think the traditional reallocation, I think the 60-40 type of thing, I think, it, it, you know, for a long-term investor, long-term view, who can tolerate market volatility, you should be at least 80% in equities or, or, or hard assets. Amen. It could be real estate. It could be infrastructure. And if you could really tolerate it, in my mind, you should have been 90%, 100% in equities. Now, a lot of people can't afford that type of volatility. This is a radical view, and yet it's it's an empirical view. It it, it proves out. You've got to have a 10, 20-year view. Okay, I'm a hopeful person. I believe that in 10 years and 20 years, humanity is in better position than it is today. With that view, I want to own hard assets. I want to own equities. I want to be a part of this economy. But how do you deal with the fact that so many people come on our shows and say this is the most perilous time? I saw one say it's the most perilous time since World War II. Others talking about how the budget deficit is going to reduce us to a pitiful, helpless giant. Yes, no question. I mean, mean, one of the facts that makes me shudder, in 2000, the U.S. deficit was $8 trillion. It's $33 trillion today. So think about it. Over the last 23 years, we raised our deficits by $25 trillion, more than a trillion dollars a year. That is unsustainable. So those, if we don't grow out of this problem, and that's why I want to talk about optimism, right. we're dead. We can't shrink our way out of this. We have to grow ourselves out of it. So I actually believe, uh, I actually believe those are real worries. And I'm, I think that's why I believe inflation is going to be higher for longer, the financing of our deficits. But this is why I'm going to every government. I've been in six countries in the last two weeks. I'm going to six more countries in the next two weeks. I believe deficits are going to start impacting economies right. 
and that's why there's a greater need for public-private investing, and that's where BlackRock comes in. Working with governments, working with states, working with uh, municipalities on, forget about the old way of financing, increasing your deficits. You're going to have to provide, you know, more opportunities for private sector to invest. Definitely, definitely. And that's going to be the 8 to 12% investment for our for Okay, our now you speak about governments, and I think you know more about investing and talking with China than anybody I deal with. Perhaps, I, you know, I don't deal with Kissinger, which is a shame, because I think he still knows more than everybody else. He's an amazing man, but, especially at 101. 101. We should all be that having that type of acuity at Absolutely. 101. But when I listen to him, I think he does say, he and Graham Allison, one of my professors, I'm so old, said that we've got to solve the China thing before it really goes off the rails. Is there a way to solve China? Um, look, there is a recalibration of relationship going on. And during a recalibration of the relationship, it creates this type of stress. Okay, I think we woke up that 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 relationship was too asymmetric. Mm -hmm. Our trade imbalance continues. We had a trade agreement in 2017. China has only lived up to a portion of what they committed to. They're not investing, they're not buying more and more U.S. goods. We're trying to make our trade more, more consistent with each other. Uh, they should be buying more of our agriculture. They should be reaching out to finding ways of deepening the relationship. You know, we had six U.S. senators in China this past week. Right. Um, we are trying to have a dialogue to recalibrate it. And at the same time, let, let's be clear. Um, I, uh, China is still supporting our enemy in Russia. We, you talked about that earlier. You know, if, if China was a corporation and they were dealing with our enemy, we would consume our business elsewhere. So I put it in that caliber of business. And that's what's accelerating this uh, movement of recalibrating supply chains. If China became and became supportive of their clients, and their largest clients are the U.S. and Europe, and they're supporting their client's enemy, or it appears they're supporting right. our enemy, and they weren't as loud as they should have been related to the issues in Israel, you know, that forces everybody to say, should I recalibrate my relationship more? And I think... You know, I'm always a believer it's economy. And we are going to see a systematic more outflows out of China if they don't reorient themselves to be working with their clients. And so I'm not saying it's going to work out. And I'm, it could get worse. But I actually, I, I wanted to simplify why we have this. Right. Um, you know, but... Some of our greatest American companies have huge businesses in China. We under-discuss that. They have real businesses there. Um, and, and so we have, to, we have to be thoughtful. Okay, there are going to be segments of our economy that we are going to restrict. But there are segments of our economy that we want to embellish with all our trading partners. And I think that's why I think a dialogue and a conversation is, is, is important. And I, I, I thought it was fantastic that the six senators led by... Uh, the majority leader Schumer going there, working there, meeting with the leadership of China, and having a hard-edged conversation. Schumer's going to be going to Israel now. As he should. And I, I yeah. wonder what you think um, the risk is about Iran jumping in and how we navigate all that with the Gerald Ford now uh, en route. 
Well, I, I think having the Gerald Ford there was a spectacular statement by the United right. States. I think President Biden's statement could not have been any more direct. Um, I, you know, I know as much as you do. Right. That's uh, obviously That's this is very fluid. Uh, obviously, the, the horrific actions of the terrorists at, uh, of Hamas. At the same time, the uh, uh, the issues around the Gaza Strip. All of these issues are, you know, let's be clear, war is bad. It's, uh, I, I, and, um, and so I don't know how this will play out. Let's hopefully, if you look at the oil market, the oil market is a little frightened that this is going to be more elevated. Um, obviously, we can't be frightened of one-day actions and one-day moves. We're going to know a lot more in the next 10 days. Uh, but my, our heart's out at BlackRock. We've been working with all our employees. We have office in, in, in Israel. We had to make sure that every one of our employees was safe, their families were safe. Some of our employees are being called into the military. I mean, this is a very fluid um, issue for us. And we are trying to work with all our clients worldwide. Now, it is at the university level, not individuals, I'm going to talk about that, but allocations. Uh, when I was at Harvard, we fought hard to not allocate any money to companies that were doing business in South Africa. Yes. Uh, and I didn't think there was any issue about that. I helped lead the movement uh, because I felt that they had uh, they had slaves, basically they slaves. Uh, I, I think there are other country, other schools right now where there are students who are very much the best from any company that uh, deals with Israel, uh, works in Israel. Are you seeing that as part of your fund flow? We have the largest ETF in Israel, so there has been outflows in the last few days. There have been. That's a de-risky. That is, no, that's absolutely right. Uh, and, the, and the shekel has declined. I mean, that's, a, that's just a market action. The answer is clearly no. I am not. We are not seeing anybody looking to divest from Israel for political reasons. Okay. Okay. For economic reasons, in the short, there's, that's the beauty of ETF. It's a market sediment uh, instrument. So you can see every day how the market's moving. And right. That ETF, we're seeing some outflows recently, okay. and that's more of a market sentiment issue. And, you know, and so and they're going to have to be spending a lot more money on military. And so their investments in tech and all that stuff is going to be slowing down. So look at war is bad. Right. No, okay. you put it. I mean, yeah, I mean, that's what is it good for? I have one last question. You ain't going anywhere, are you? Uh, I'm not call, being called up for duty now. <laughs> no, you, I just hope that you're sticking around. Right? I'm sticking around. I actually have more energy. As I said, I've been in um, I've been in six countries the last two weeks. I'm going to six more countries in the next two weeks. Uh, I get energized by travel. I get energized by having deeper connections with our clients. And the opportunity I see for BlackRock overseas is fantastic. Um, the conversations of public-private partnerships. We, you know, we announced this partnership with the government of New Zealand you know, right. with their Net Zero Fund. We're doing a huge project in Australia right, right now in battery storage. Um, I'm very excited. We're going to have a couple big announcements here in the U.S. of partnerships with some major companies. This would give you know, this would gives me the energy to move forward. Excellent. And the Excellent. most important thing, what also gives me a lot of energy, I could tell you. Um, we have a great team of leadership Perfect. behind Rob and I at BlackRock. Great uh, board, going to power the firm for many years ahead. <laughs> okay, you don't well, look tired. <laughs> no, you don't look tired. And I feel like when I listen to you that I remember my friend Mark Benioff, and he is my friend, what can I say? Business can be the greatest force for social change. It is the greatest force, force for, for social. social good. And let's be clear, 
Capitalism every day shows it's the best economic force in the world. It is the greatest long-term economic force for peace. Let's leave it there. Larry Fink, thank you so much for coming on our show. I really appreciate it. Good to see you. As we go to break, let's check bonds. Uh, Yields a little bit close to the highs of the session, but still lower on the day. We got some relief from import prices. Those Harker headlines were a little cool. We'll get you, Mish, in about seven minutes. Be right back. Jim, what's on the max? We got to cover the banks. I'll tell you, JP Morgan's acting a little bit like Nvidia. How do you like that, Jensen Wong? Look out, Jamie Dimon. Wells Fargo, Charlie Sharp, baby, he's delivering. It's time. It's time for the banks. And why not? Everything else has been awful. Jim, we'll see you tonight. What Thank a week. Thank you. Yeah, it was a great week. And I, you know, look, Larry, I learned from him every time. Yep. Mad Money, 6 p.m. Jim's right. Uh, banks trading at a three week high. Uh, it's not UNH. Uh, JP Morgan is leading the Dow. We're back in two. You've been listening to the opening bell on CNBC's Squawk on the Street. All opinions expressed by the Squawk on the Street participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, or their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information Squawk on the Street participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Squawk on the Street disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Squawk on the Street disclaimer. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. 